Our text this morning is taken from Zephaniah chapter 1, the verses 14 through 16, and we'll read those verses once again. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Following the sermon, our initial response will be the singing of Psalm 90, the stanzas 1, 2, and 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fourth stanza of the Canadian National Anthem, we have the words, as waiting for the better day, we ever stand on guard. So as citizens of the country of Canada, we're saying that there's an element of looking forward, knowing that in spite of any current trouble that exists or that may arise in this time, there's a better day that's coming, a day on which there will be no need to stand on guard any longer. And there is something similar in the life of the Christian. We too are waiting for the better day, the day on which our Lord Jesus Christ returns, the day on which our salvation is complete, the day on which sin and misery are completely removed from the equation. It's a reality that we eagerly long for. Now, in the scriptures, this day of Christ's return is spoken about often. We find it in our reading from 2 Peter 3, and it's also foretold here in Zephaniah chapter 1. Only in Zephaniah 1, it's not called the better day, it's referred to as the day of the Lord. And that's actually one of the main themes in Zephaniah's prophecies. If you read all three chapters, you read a lot about this day of the Lord. But when you look at the prophet's description of this day, you get a very different sense from what we normally think. We eagerly look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. But according to Zephaniah, it's not a day to look forward to. If you look at his description, it's a day to be afraid of. Similarly, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Looking at the words of our text in Zephaniah 1, we can see why this day would not be something to look forward to. 
Zephaniah does not present a sense of joy. He doesn't give any reason for optimism. Instead, he says this is the day on which God's anger will be poured out in full. God's wrath will be experienced in a way that has never been seen before. One commentator has referred to Zephaniah chapter 1 as the greatest treatise in the Bible on God's anger. However, this day of the Lord is not a one-time event. It's not just an Old Testament reality. It's a day that's still coming for the new covenant people of God. As we said, Peter refers to it in chapter 3, verse 10. And therefore, we also do well to consider the day of the Lord as the prophet Zephaniah presents it to us this morning. I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. The day of the Lord is near. And we're going to look at the timing of this day, and we're going to look at the character of this day. So the first thing our text addresses is the timing of this day. And it makes it very clear. This day is near. And then in the, in the original, that word near is placed first, which gives it all the emphasis. Literally, you could read our text as follows. Near is the great day of the Lord. Well, that's a statement that causes shock, that causes surprise. This prophet bringing the word of the Lord... He now makes it clear that he's not talking about a day that's sometime way off in the future, something that people don't have to worry about. No, he says, I'm speaking about something close. I'm speaking about something that's at hand here. And that's reinforced when we continue looking at our text. It's again emphasized the nearness of this day when the prophet says that it's near and hastening fast. So not only is the day of the Lord near, but it's going to arrive quickly. God is not slow in making this day a reality. He's busy. He's hard at work. He's not delaying moving forward to that day because God wants that day to come about. Now, the fact that this day of the Lord is near, it's meant to stir the people of Judah to immediate action, to urgency. Brothers and sisters, you will agree that if the prophet or if God had told his people that the day of the Lord is coming, but it's still a long ways off, that takes away from the impact of the message. Then there is no urgency to respond, then the people can take their time doing as they please. However, the Lord does not want his people to sit back and relax while waiting for his day to come. He wants them roused to action immediately. But what does he want them to do? The truth is that our text doesn't really answer that question. This passage, like the first six verses of Zephaniah 1, it doesn't leave us with really anything except the certainty of God's coming judgment. However, we can deduce what God wants his people to be busy with by working backwards in a sense. In the verses before our text, we find the reasons for that certainly coming day of the Lord. We read those verses earlier. And those verses made it clear that the day of the Lord was coming 
because of the sin of his people. And we're talking about all the people. According to verse 8, it starts with the royal family and the royal officials. They were filled with violence and fraud, according to verse 9. These people, these royalty, they'd made themselves great, but they hadn't cared for those who were under them. They'd ignored their God-given responsibility. But the sin of the people also included the so-called ordinary people, the citizens in Judah. Zephaniah 1 speaks about them in verse 12 as people who are complacent. They're people who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill or evil. The people at that time, they were convinced, they had convinced themselves that God was not going to take action of any kind. They say he's a God who stands back. He's a God who watches everything. He's a God who knows everything. But he doesn't do anything about it. According to verse 13, these people were just concerned with their goods, their personal financial security. They'd built good houses. They'd planted nice vineyards. By all human standards, they had a great life. But in the midst of that life, they took God out of the picture. They said, God won't act. God won't intervene. God will let us do what we want. Well, now we see why the Lord presents the coming of his day with such urgency. He says it's near. It's hastening fast because the people have become complacent. They don't reckon with God's active intervention in this world. They truly believe that life will just carry on as it always has. And so to shake them from their complacency, God tells them that his great day is near and it's hastening quickly. These people need to consider that God is going to intervene very powerfully in his world. And they need to consider that immediately. There's no time to delay. However, congregation, we also know that it was any time between 25 to 50 years later that the Lord would finally fulfill this prophecy with the Babylonian invasion and the exile that followed. So while the prophet proclaims that the day of the Lord is near, it's hastening quickly, 25 to 50 years still pass by. How do we line those two up? In order to do so, we have to step back a little bit. We have to see what exactly the Lord is teaching his people in the words of this prophecy. As we said earlier, the words make it clear God doesn't want his people simply sitting back, relaxing, doing whatever they want. And because we know why God's judgment was coming, namely on the sin of his people, then it's clear what God wants them to be busy with, namely serving him, following his commandments and his laws, striving to do so more and more. He wants them to be living in accordance with the obligation of the covenant so that he might continue to richly pour out his blessings upon his people. And then he expects that in result, his people will praise him. And God had blessed his people in the promised land. But what the people at the time had done is they'd received the covenant blessings, they'd taken them for granted, 
They'd say, this is our work. We earn these things. They'd used all these things with selfish motivations. And in their complacency, they justified it by saying, no worries. God won't intervene. No one's going to hold us accountable. And so by speaking about the day of the Lord that was near and coming quickly, the Lord is trying to shock his people into changing their ways immediately. He's trying to startle them so that they actively and purposefully live in the knowledge that God doesn't just stand back, but that he's going to intervene in a most powerful way. Now the truth is, brothers and sisters, this complacency, it was not only a problem that afflicted the people of God back then. The same deadly attitude that took root in the Old Testament church also infects the New Testament church. And that's what we read about in 2 Peter 3. As we mentioned earlier, this passage also speaks about the day of the Lord, where it says this day will come like a thief, unexpectedly, suddenly. And yet before this day comes, Peter writes that scoffers are going to come with the question, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And these scoffers, scoffers who arise from inside the church, they're questioning the reality of whether or not Jesus Christ will actually return. They're complacent. They believe God will do nothing. They say he simply lets this world continue on as it always has since creation, and this predictable pattern will just continue uninterrupted. And it would be very easy for any one of us to find some sympathy in their question. Where is the promise of his coming? For if people who lived 30 years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus, if they struggled to accept the reality of his coming, what about us? We don't live 30 years after the ascension of Christ. We live nearly 2,000 years after Christ returned to heaven. And he still hasn't come back. Why does he take so long? All throughout the New Testament, the Lord Jesus and his apostles, they said that Christ was coming back soon. He says that to the Apostle John as we read it in Revelation 22 verse 20. But we'd hardly think of 2,000 years as being soon. Yet Peter helps us to understand the seeming delay as people reason it, whether that applies to the days of Zephaniah or the day in which we live today. He says in verse 8, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Part of that quote comes from Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, God is presented as the eternal God. So this God who stands above time, he has a very different view of time than people do. From God's eternal perspective, 50 years, in the time of Zephaniah, 50 years, that's not a long time at all. For a thousand years, according to humans, or about one day, according to God. 
50 years, not even a quarter of a day from God's perspective. And 2,000 years, what we experience today, 2,000 years, from God's perspective, only two days. Two days isn't long at all. And that's how God views time. One day, sorry, so when the Lord tells us that the day of the Lord is near and that it's coming quickly, there's no reason to doubt Him. God is in a hurry. He's working hard right now for the coming of His great day. Because as Peter also writes, one human day is to God as a thousand years as well. One day. To God, that seems like forever as he looks on the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion of man. In that sense, the day of the Lord cannot come quickly enough. But knowing that God's divine calendar is different than ours, it shouldn't let us fall into complacency either. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Suddenly, it will be there. For the people of Judah, suddenly the day of the Lord was upon them and the Babylonians invaded and took them into exile. God made haste, but he did so slowly. He gave ample time for his people to repent, ample time for his people to be shaken out of their complacency and to turn to God for safety. But eventually time was up. The day of the Lord came, just as God promised. And the same thing is going to happen with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. Right now is the time of God's patience. Right now, God gives ample time for people to turn to Him in faith and repent of their sins. But eventually, that time of patience will come to an end. Right now, God makes haste toward the coming of His great and glorious day. But in His love for people, desiring that all come to repentance... He makes haste in accordance with his divine calendar and not with our human calendar. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming soon. Do you doubt that God will intervene? That the Lord Jesus Christ will return? Brothers and sisters, we would never say that we doubt it. However, our life often shows otherwise. So often we too have that same complacency. We live as though this world is just certain to continue. We don't live with the certain coming of Jesus Christ actually functioning in our lives, actually governing our lives. Instead, we so often live like those people in Zephaniah's time. We enjoy the many good things we have in this life, but we actually act like God won't do good or he won't do evil. We act like he's not going to intervene in any way. We assume that the world will continue, that tomorrow will come just as it has in the past. The sun's going to rise. The sun's going to set. We'll have the opportunity to do all the things that we've planned. And who would ever doubt that? Look back. You see that this is the normal pattern that's existed for so many years. But if we live with that certain coming of Jesus Christ functioning in our lives, then we don't assume anything. 
For then we know that very suddenly, things will not continue as they always have. Then we know that eventually time will be up. And therefore, the Lord also gives us this word from Zephaniah out of care for us and our salvation. He gives us that startling reminder that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming back soon and he will return like a thief in the night. Perhaps tonight. Perhaps tomorrow. We don't know. And the goal is not that we try to predict when he's going to come back either. It's that we live knowing with certainty that he will come back. God shakes us from our complacency and he reminds us that as long as he has not yet returned, then we need to be active, striving to serve the God who has purchased us with the precious blood of his son. God calls us to follow the master who loved us and gave himself up for us and to do so before it is too late, before the master returns and he finds us sleeping. And then as part of this reminder, he tells us what this great day of the Lord will look like for those who continue to live in their complacency. So while the first words of our text taught us about the timing of the day of the Lord, the rest of the text teaches us about the character of this day and congregation is not a pleasant picture that's set before us. At the end of verse 14, our text says that even the sound of this day is bitter. Just hearing about the great day of the Lord and all that it entails, it's not a pleasant sound. It brings out very strong reactions. And the reason for that is spelled out in the verses 15 and 16. There the day of the Lord is first introduced as a day of wrath. And from there, the text goes on to describe the day as a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, trumpet blast and battle cry. Now, each of these pairs that's used has a specific purpose. By describing this day as a day of distress and ruin, the Lord is directly addressing what lives inside a person, their emotions. He says that when this day comes, it's going to leave people devastated emotionally. They won't know how to handle it when, it, when the day comes. It's going to leave them torn up inside, crying out for relief. Not only will it impact them emotionally, though, there will be physical effects as well. Ruin and devastation. Everything that could be seen with the eyes, it will be turned into a heap of rubble. Nothing that existed before will be recognizable. And that in turn would have a further impact on the emotional state of those observing the judgment of God. So with these first descriptions, we see how each person individually will be impacted. And it's not surprising when you think about it how strong that impact will be. After all, these people had lived in complacency. So this utter ruin and this devastation, it's the last thing they thought they would see. They thought God was just going to let it all go. 
So not only their whole world, but their whole world view has come crashing down around them. Furthermore, there's no way they can attribute these horrible things to chance either. They can't see all these things happening and say, well, bad luck for Judah, but God has nothing to do with it. The last two sets of descriptions that we find in verse 15 don't allow for that way of thinking. You see, congregation, when the Lord describes this day as a day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, he's not just using pictures that people are familiar with. Now, with this language, he's pointing their attention back in history. And he's forcing them to think about the fact that God does intervene. He says, when God intervenes, it's powerful. It's fearsome. It's awesome. All at the same time. By describing this day as a day of darkness, he points back to the ninth plague he sent against the land of Egypt. In Exodus 10, verse 21, the Lord himself describes the darkness of this plague as a darkness to be felt. Exodus 10, verse 22, it was pitch darkness for three days to the point that no one left their house. So clearly that darkness was not just some natural phenomena that took place. It was God's active intervention, his judgment and his wrath on Pharaoh and his land for hardening his heart. But that's not the only place in history to which God is directing his people's attention. There's also the, day of, the description of the day of the Lord as a day of clouds. And that points his people back to when he appeared before them on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verse 16 says that at the time there was a thick cloud on the mountain. And according to that same verse, there was also a loud trumpet blast. Another description of the day of the Lord that we find in verse 16 of our text. So the Lord God is making it perfectly clear to his people through this prophecy that on this day of the Lord, this is going to be a day when God himself appears to his people. And it will be a day where they all notice his coming. The loud sounding of the trumpet will ensure that. No one will be able to claim ignorance and say they didn't know. Only when the day of the Lord came for the people after Zephaniah's prophecy, it was not the trumpet sounded by God. It would be the trumpet sounded by the commanders of the army as they called the people to battle against the Babylonians. Or it would be through hearing the trumpet sounding among the army of Babylon as they marched up against Jerusalem to wage war and to carry out the judgment of God. For the people of Judah, there was no good news that concerned the coming day of the Lord. All they heard was that this would be the day on which God's wrath was poured out in full upon his people because of their sin and their complacency. They didn't believe God would intervene in any way. Well, now they experience his intervention in only one way, and that's the fullness of his anger against their sin. They didn't want to take God seriously before. Well, now they won't have a choice. And yes, congregation, we know that it's the fullness of his anger also from our text. In verses 15 and 16, that word day is found a total of seven times, both in the English and in the Hebrew. That number seven, you've probably heard before, that number seven is significant. It symbolizes perfection, 
completeness. With the day of the Lord, the day on which Jerusalem fell to Babylon, God's wrath was not held back. He made it clear to everyone at that time that he is not a God who just stands back, who just watches everything happen. No, he is a God who takes action. He intervenes with judgment and destruction for those who are complacent and do not walk in his ways. And that is also why the day of the Lord is referred to as great in verse 14 of our text. The great day of the Lord. Not because it's so wonderful or so amazing. It's called great because of its intensity. The extent to which it impacted the people and the land with devastation that had not been seen for such a long time in the history of the world. Now, much of this language is also found in the last book of the Bible as well. When we read about the time that our Lord Jesus Christ returns, we read about angels pouring out the seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 16. Again, you hear that number seven. Again, you hear about the completion of God's wrath being poured out. We also read of darkness in Revelation 16, verse 10. We read of a great city splitting into three parts and the cities of the nations falling, Revelation 16, verse 19. We read of the seven trumpets sounding, Revelation 8 and 9. And you can't help but notice all these connections between Revelation and the verses of our text. And when you think about it this way, that Christ is going to return... And when he does, all people will stand before the judgment seat of God and that his wrath described so vividly and so terrifying in Zephaniah, it's going to be poured out completely. What is there to look forward to? Again, those words of Amos that we quoted in the introduction to the sermon come to mind. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is the day of the Lord really the better day? Well, there's one major difference between the people of Judah at Zephaniah's time and us as we look forward to the day of the Lord. And that difference is, between in, is that in between those two days, you have a certain event. And that's the coming of Jesus Christ, who will not only sit on the throne as judge at the end of world history, but who came into this world with a specific purpose. Christ came to suffer and to die and to bear that terrifying wrath of God in our place. As he hung on the cross during those three hours of darkness, the entire wrath of God was being poured out upon him at that time. All the horror of hell is what Christ experienced as he was forsaken by God. All the wrath we deserve because of our sin, because of our complacency, that's what Christ suffered for us. And it is because of his unspeakable suffering, pain, terror, and agony that the words of John 5, verse 24, are such a beautiful comfort. And in those words, Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, the joyful gospel we hear is that as we live and walk by faith, we will not come into judgment because our judgment day has passed. Our judgment day took place on Golgotha when our Savior stood in our place and when He bore the wrath of God that we deserve. Thus we may have the assurance of Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the curse of God's judgment. We have been given the joyful assurance that as we cling to Christ in true faith, then what we have to look forward to is very different than what is described here in our text. And it is all because Christ stepped into our place. It is all because he suffered the fullness of God's wrath for us. That is the message that we must believe from the heart because that is a message that changes absolutely everything. When you believe that message, it also removes any idea of being complacent from your heart. Then you don't sit back with a casual attitude that God won't intervene or that Christ won't return. You're looking forward to when it does happen because that's the day of your complete and full salvation. And as you look forward to that great day with eager longing, you live as one hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. We read that in 2 Peter 3, verse 12. In God's divine wisdom, he has so ordained things that his people, by living lives of repentance, holiness, godliness, they actually hasten the great day of the Lord. Well, knowing what awaits you, knowing the eternal joy in store for you at that time, why would you not want to hasten it? Why would you not want to experience the fullness of your salvation? Congregation, let this gospel ring in your heads. The wrath of God is gone. It's replaced by the joy of faith. It's replaced by the certainty of eternal blessedness. It's through Jesus Christ that we may look forward to the great day of the Lord the day on which the trumpet shall sound at the coming of our Savior, for he has transformed it from a day of wrath to a day of blessing for those who believe. It's a day in time that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. And so, yes, we do look forward to that glorious day. We look forward to the better day. We look forward to the great day of the Lord. Amen.